invite you to turn in your Bibles back to the book of Job. Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Job 34 and uh, 35 for um, catechism. We'll cover Lord's Days 9 and 10 next week. And so uh, do continue memorizing Lord's Day 9 for this week if that's where your class is. Uh, But I wanted to to take these two Elihu sections together today um, as, as sort of a part one and part two. We'll consider Job 34 through 37 this afternoon, though I'll read just 34 and 35. And so uh, please keep your Bibles open as we'll, we'll try to, to cover um, the whole section. But we'll read now beginning at 34 verse 1. Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge, for the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, Nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern... Will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away, the mighty are taken away without a hand, for his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves, for he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him And would not consider any of his ways, so that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him, for he hears the cry of the afflicted when he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him, whether it is against a nation or a man alone, that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared? For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening? I will offend no more. 
Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. Men of understanding say to me, Wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Moreover, Eli, who answered and said, do you think this is right? Do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker? Who gives songs in the night. Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, Therefore, Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. We'll conclude our reading there. For those of you who were not here this morning or who maybe need a bit of a recap, in uh, chapters 32 and 33, we made the case that Elihu, this fourth figure, who did not sit with Job in the ash heap and now shows up at the end of the book to condemn him, should not be read positively. But the author deliberately presents him as an angry young man who lacks wisdom and is full of himself, who takes a chapter and a half to tell us how important what he has to say is, who who claims to speak for God, but will go on to say things that are contradicted by God. He thinks himself wise, but misunderstands the true nature of wisdom. And we'll see that especially this afternoon in his cruel words and misquoting of Job and his denial of the imminence of God, his rebuke of Job's prayers of lament and his rehashing the prosperity gospel of Job's friends. In all this, we see that Elihu is not all that different from the friends in terms of the content of his message, though he is harsher. But we might see him as a a continuation of the suffering of Job at the hands of his friends. In fact, one Old Testament scholar says we might consider the trial and, and temptation of Job here to have reached its apex. And he calls Elihu a last ditch tool of temptation 
in the hand of Satan. In fact, there is a tradition in Jewish interpretation of the book of Job that actually sees Elihu as, as Satan himself coming as a, a sort of angel of light. Not arguing that. But we've said consistently throughout the book that the friends, even, even Job's wife earlier on, become the mouthpiece of Satan in the counsel that they give. And I believe we see the same thing in the speeches of Elihu. So as we look at these next four chapters, these um, three speeches together in one sermon, I want to show you how Elihu proves himself not to be a prophet, but a pretender by misrepresenting Job and misunderstanding God. Those are our two points this afternoon, misrepresenting Job and misunderstanding God. First, how does Elihu misrepresent Job? Notice in... Uh, 34 verse 5, how he quotes Job. It says, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. And it continues into verse 6. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And there's a sense in which we could say that, 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 that that's maybe a sort of, of paraphrase of some of the things that Job has said, that, that yes, he has maintained that, that he's righteous, but has been treated as a wicked man. He said that he will not lie concerning his integrity, but he has not said that he's without transgression. Again, in uh, chapter 7 and chapter 13 and chapter 14, he's affirmed time and again that he's a sinner. His regular practice of making sacrifice for sins suggests that, that he affirms that. His hope in a redeemer affirms that. But Elihu has again misrepresented Job in suggesting that Job believes he's without sin. He's taken his words out of context and disregarded the fact that, that what Job has said is that he's not sinned in such a way as to bring about this suffering. Elihu ignores the context of Job's incurable wound. Even though he mentions it in verse 6, he ignores it, making him even more culpable since he has apparently heard something of the depths of Job's pain. And after misquoting him, he mocks him in verse 7. He slanders God's servant and says, What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water? Who goes in the company with with workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? Do you hear a little bit of an echo of what we just sang a few minutes ago from Psalm 1? He's presenting Job as the sort of anti-Psalm 1 man. The blessed man of Psalm 1 does not walk with the wicked or sit with the scornful, but Elihu says that Job does those very things. He drinks scorn like water, he goes in company with workers of iniquity, and he walks with wicked men. What an unfair and inaccurate assessment of God's blameless servant who fears God and shuns evil. That's God's own testimony three times. And then he misquotes Job in verse 9. For he has said that it profits a man nothing to delight in God. Really? Has Job said that? Has Job said that it profits a man nothing to delight in God? 
No, in, in chapter 21, he, he quoted the unrighteous who say that it profits a man nothing. But he has continued to affirm that the fear of the Lord is wisdom and he refuses to cast his lot with the wicked. You go back and, and read chapter 21 and 23 and 24. Elihu is putting words in Job's mouth. He is slandering God's servant. And in so doing, has become like the rulers of Psalm 2 who take counsel against that Psalm 1 man. He is misrepresenting God's servant which he will do more of at the end of the chapter, um, after speaking about the, the justice of God in the middle, much of which is, is true. But even then, he, he implies in verse 17 that, that Job has said that God hates justice. Or verse 18, that God is worthless. But that's not what Job has said. In verse 22, he implies that Job is a worker of iniquity. In verse 25, that he is among those whom God knows his works and he will be crushed. Verse 26, the wicked men whom God strikes because they turned back from him and would not consider his ways. And verse 30, that he's a hypocrite. That's the implication of of that whole section. Verses um, 31 to 33 are more of the same, implying that that Job is wrong to have suggested that, that he's being chastened for iniquity he did not commit. Elihu says he must now choose to repent instead of refusing to admit what he knows to be true. Then he ends his second speech in verse 34, imagining the way that all of the men of understanding and the wise men who were presumably gathered at this point, imagining the way that they would all respond to his sermon, saying that these wise men and these men of understanding will say to him, yes, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without wisdom. Oh, that he were tried to the utmost because he answers like wicked men, adding rebellion to his sin, clapping his hands among us and multiplying words against God. Elihu arrogantly says, all the wise men will agree with what I've just said. That Job, because you are suffering, you have obviously sinned, and because you are complaining to God about it, you have added rebellion to your sin, and therefore it would be best if you were tried to the uttermost. By which he means it would be best if Job were sent additional affliction by God to force him to his knees in humble submission. He is wishing further harm and further suffering on God's servant. One OPC pastor, John Hartley, says, Elihu here wants to crucify Job, who is a type of Christ. He condemns him as a hypocrite who is deserving of God's judgment. He calls him wicked. He calls him foolish. Verse 35, he says, All the wise men know that Job knows nothing. And he says that he's deserving of greater affliction, greater testing, greater trial. Which there's a sense in in which... The next three chapters are as he continues to suffer through three more chapters of Elihu misrepresenting him and misunderstanding God. He again puts words in Job's mouth in 35 verse 2. Do you think that this is right, Job? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say it's of no advantage to him. Again, he misquotes and slanders God's servant. Job never said that it profits a man nothing to serve God. Job didn't claim that he's more righteous than God. 
And then after putting these words in Job's mouth, he says, oh, I'll answer you. I'll answer those, those blasphemous uh, words that have come out of your mouth, which, which actually haven't. And we'll put his answer in, in verses 5 to 8 on, on pause until our next point about how Elihu misunderstands God. But I want you to just notice how unfair it is to set up this straw man in verses 2 and 3 where he misquotes Job and then he rushes to answer Job and condemn him for something he did not say. Doug O'Donnell says that, that this clause, I will answer you and your friends with you, is, is perhaps the most arrogant and cruel statement in the book. How condescending, after putting words in Job's mouth, now Elihu makes sure that his own words of wisdom will be heard in response to them. We'll consider those words in just a minute. But first, notice what Elihu says about Job in the last half of the chapter. Beginning... At verse 9, he implies that all of Job's crying out to God has been merely because of a desire to end his suffering, but not because he desires God himself. In verse 9, he says, they cry out because of the arm of the mighty and the oppression of the multitude, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? He's implying that Job, like the the faithless unbelievers in the world who cry out to God at the the last moment, he's he's implying that like them, Job's prayers are foxhole prayers. That he does not care about God himself, but his only interest in God is in what he can get from him. Recall that's precisely what Satan said about Job in chapter 1. Elihu is denying that Job has any interest in God himself, even though in chapter 10, chapter 14, and and, and chapter 19, that has consistently been the thing that Job most longs for. Go back and read in in chapter 10 how he speaks of of how he used to to sense experientially the, the love of God, the one who fashioned him in the womb and cared for him and made his steadfast love to, to be so, so sensed by Job. He says, I miss that. Remember chapter 14, we heard it this morning in the assurance of pardon. He longs for God to speak his name and desire him. He wants to be reconciled to him. And the thing that he most wants to see, Job 19, is God himself. But Elihu denies that. It says, Job, the fact that you are crying out to God in in the midst of of, of your suffering, the the fact that you are crying out to him in lament as you find yourself in this situation really means that you don't actually care about God, but you just want your suffering to end. As if we can't do both. Perhaps you've heard before people maybe scold or rebuke other Christians for for longing for heaven where where tears will be no more and and chiding them and saying, no, really, the reason why you should desire heaven is because that's where God is. Actually, I think Revelation 21 allows us to do both. As side by side next to each other are the promises that tears will be no more and God will be with us. And that's what Job longs for. It is not inappropriate to pray to God to wipe away our tears. But Elihu seems to believe there is something inappropriate about Job's prayers. And verses 12 and 13, that's that's why God doesn't answer. Because of Job's pride. 
because of his inordinate focus on his suffering. Verse 15, he speaks of Job's words as folly. Verse 16, it's opening his mouth in vain. And I think we're to read this along with verse 37 of chapter 34, where Elihu says that by his lamentation, Job is adding rebellion to his sin. That he is rebelling against the providence of God by crying out in anguish. He says, no, instead, Job, what you need to be doing, 35 verse 10, is singing songs in the night, songs of praise and not of sorrow, regardless of your circumstance. Elihu does not have room in his theology for psalms of lament, but only for songs of triumph and songs of happy, clappy religion. Elihu would not have had room for, for Christ's lament on the cross in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? or Psalm 69, or Psalm 42, or Psalm 88, but only has room for praise choruses and songs of thanksgiving. One of Elihu's chief charges against Job is that he has failed to speak rightly of God. That's why he ends chapter 34 and ends chapter 35 saying that. But God, in the end, will say that Job has spoken rightly of him. As one pastor has said, therefore, Job helps us to see that tears fit as well and often better on this side of glory. He gives us permission to sing songs of lament. But Elihu wishes to forbid that because he not only misrepresents God's servant, but as we'll see next, he also misunderstands God. He must understand that God is not a God who is distant from us in our suffering, but is Emmanuel, which means God with us. As we heard in our our call to worship, near to the brokenhearted. But in chapter 35, verses 5 through 8, Elihu paints a picture of God that, that, that is so high that he is entirely removed from and unmoved by the affairs of men. He says, Job, if you sin... That makes no difference to God. If you are righteous, that makes no difference to God. Repeating the same thing that Eliphaz said back in chapter 22, I think it was verses 1 to 4, that man cannot be profitable to God, and so it's no pleasure to the Almighty if Job is righteous. That's what Eliphaz said in chapter 22. That's what Elihu says here in 35, 5 to 8. That it's no pleasure to the Almighty if Job is righteous. But in fact, that's actually the very point of the book, that God is glorified through the faithful suffering of his servant. That's God's answer to the accuser, Satan. His answer is the righteousness of Job and his continued righteousness, even in affliction. And so actually, Elihu, God is concerned with the righteousness of Job. And in your attempt to affirm God's transcendence, you have completely missed his imminence, his nearness. And Elihu's God sounds more like the God of the deist. Elihu has misunderstood God, implying that God does not care about the affairs of men and implying that God is so great, he doesn't care about the superficial cries of sinners like Job. And then in chapter 36... Though he he misunderstands God, he claims, verse 2, to speak on God's behalf. He says that he is perfect in knowledge. By the way, I don't think any of the the prophets in the Bible ever make that claim of themselves, that they are perfect in knowledge, but, but Elihu here does. In fact, he makes it several times. 
And then he goes on to rehearse the, the prosperity theology of Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, saying that God does not preserve the life of the wicked, verse 6, but that if you obey him, if you serve him, verse 11, if you turn away from iniquity, verse 10, then he will send you prosperity. He's like a divine gumball machine where if you, you put in obedience and, and turn it, he will reward you with a gumball of prosperity. Verse 11, years of pleasure. But if you don't obey, verse 12, then you will perish by the sword. The hypocrite, verse 13, stores up wrath. And he says in verse 16, Job, God would have, have brought you out of dire distress and brought you into a broad place with a table full of fatness, full of richness. That's what he would have done. But you have chosen iniquity instead, verse 21, instead of recognizing this, this affliction as God's megaphone to rouse you from your sin. And therefore, you have forfeited the hope of that broad place and that table full of richness. Isn't it ironic that, that just after blasting Job for praying to God, not for God himself, but because of his material loss, Elihu now seeks to entice Job with the promise of material gain. How ironic. How inconsistent. Job, turn away from iniquity so you can prosper. That's been the message of the friends. And even though Elihu has insisted that he will not answer Job with their answers, he repeats the same old song. And not unlike Zophar, in chapter 11, he now calls Job to exalt God's incomprehensible majesty, beginning at verse 22. It says, verse 24, Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Perhaps again implying that Job has been singing the wrong song, lamenting instead of magnifying God's work. And he goes on to speak of, of the greatness of God in creation, beginning at verse 26, all the way through verse 13 of chapter 37. This, this longer section, really, there's three distinct subsections in it where he extols the greatness of God in the rain, in verses 26 through 28, and then the greatness of God in the storm, in 36, 29 through 37, 4, and finally, the greatness of God in the snow and the ice, in 37, verses uh, 5 to 13. And if you look at these sections, sections each of them are, are preceded by or introduced by um, statements about the incomprehensibility of God. Verse 26, he says, God is great, we do not know him. Verse 29, can anyone understand the, the spreading of the clouds? And 37, verse 5, God does things that we cannot comprehend. And so the point of everything that Elihu says about creation, by the way, what he says about creation is, is true, but the point of everything that he's saying, that the way that he is applying it is that God is, is incomprehensible. That's the point of the whole chapter. God is so far above you, Job, that you cannot know him and you cannot understand him. And so he says to Job in 37 verse 14, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Stop demanding a meeting with him. Stop complaining to him and consider his incomprehensibility. And realize, verse 23, this is, this is Elihu's conclusion. 
that as for the Almighty, we cannot find him. In verse 24, he will not regard those who are wise in their own heart. The New King James says he shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart, but but the, the idea is that he will not regard them. He will not pay attention to them. He will not draw near to them. He's saying you cannot find him, and he will not regard you. Just like 35 verse 12, he will not answer you, Job. He will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. God is not going to condescend and listen to you. That's the whole point of chapter 37. He is so high and exalted, so distant from you and uninterested, as Elihu said in 35 verses 5 to 8, that he will not condescend in mercy to meet with you. John Hartley says, in Elihu's understanding of God, he does not graciously give of himself. He does not condescend by way of covenant, but he is far from man. In fact, that's been the one resounding note in all of Elihu and all of the friend's speeches. They they have a lot to say about the incomprehensible greatness of God and how far from man he is. They have a lot to say about the justice of God, but they have nothing to say about the covenant love and mercy of God. Not one thing in all of their 12 speeches spanning 15 chapters. Nothing to say. So they have not truly understood the wondrous works of God that Elihu summons Job to consider in 37.14. Hartley points out that in the almost 70 times that phrase occurs throughout the Old Testament, the, the wondrous works of God, that in the almost 70 times that phrase occurs throughout the Old Testament, almost every occurrence of the wondrous works of God refers to his wondrous works of steadfast love in salvation. Elihu is the one who has not stood still to consider the wondrous works of God. And so he cannot fathom that this high and holy God will literally come down in the very next verse in 38.1 to meet with Job and to say in 42.7 that Job has spoken rightly of him. Irrigation, the way that we know Elihu is not a true prophet of God is because the very thing that he predicts in the last two verses of his speech is contradicted one verse later. And the whole thrust of his speech that Job has not spoken rightly of God is contradicted in 42.7. Elihu is the one who's not spoken rightly of God. Though he is not mentioned in 42 verse 7, and God's rebuke of the other three friends, as Derek Kidner has said, it's because he does not even qualify for condemnation. Or because, as as Elihu himself has said in 37, verse 24, God does not regard the ones who are wise in their own eyes. So God does not regard him. Another scholar, David Jackson, says, God does not even deem Elihu important enough to address directly, nor does he refer to him. Elihu is humbled by his obvious irrelevance and treated like a child while God speaks to the men in chapter 42. And instructs Job to make a prayer for the friends, to intercede for the friends, but not for Elihu, who has so missed the mark. We see in the speeches of Elihu an example of bad pastoral counsel, 
We see the speeches of Elihu, an example of those who deem lament off limits and believe that God does not care about our suffering. We see in the speeches of Elihu an arrogance that is almost unrivaled in Holy Scripture as he claims to speak for God, yet does not understand him, warning us not to hide our pride under pretense of prophecy, taking God's name in vain and pretending to speak for God when really we're just airing our own opinion and letting out the wind within us. And we see in the speeches of Elihu why it is that we need so desperately for God to come and speak. As the primary function of of this section of the book of Job is to demonstrate that human participants in the debate have no way of solving Job's problem. They are meant to convince us that God must intervene. Eric Ortland says, hearing Elihu is meant to make us um, uh, even more anxious for God to speak. And that he will do in the very next chapter. Bill Kynes says, Elihu tries to do what, what the friends fail to do. He tries to bring resolution to Job's perplexity, but he too fails. We're left with only one hope. Only God can meet Job's needs. He must have a personal encounter with God himself. Nothing else will do. God must condescend and come to him, which is not only what he will do to suffering Job in chapter 38, it's also what he does with us as he comes to us in the person of his son condescending by grace to show us that he is not the uncaring God of chapter 35, verses 5 to 8, but a God who cares, in fact, who cares so much that he will not only hear the prayers of his people, contrary to what Elihu says, but will enter into their suffering in the person of his son, of whom Job is a type and shadow. Job's life itself is a prophecy of how God will answer this question. In his suffering, Job points us to God's answer. It's Jesus, who in his humble birth and sacrificial death will assure us by his suffering, unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul that he has delivered us from hellish anguish and torment. The kind of hellish anguish and torment Job speaks of in his lament. God delivers us from that through coming down in Christ. That's what Elihu misses. He misses the hope of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that has been driving Job's hope for a redeemer. He misses the redeemer that Job longed for in chapter 19. He misses the redeemer of, of whom Job will say, Now my eyes have seen you. He misses the only thing that will truly give Job comfort and so ends up condemning him instead of comforting him. As we do too, anytime our counsel is absent of the cross, anytime we point suffering saints not to the manger, the cross, and the empty tomb, but instead to an uncaring God who leaves it up to us to be good enough to earn a life of prosperity now. Love that is demonic. That is precisely the sort of counsel Satan wants us to hear so that we'd be left with no cross and left with no hope. Which is why God intervenes at that very moment to speak to Job. God comes down from heaven to meet with him in this veil of tears just as he has us in his son. But it's not like Elihu and like the friends miss that in the counsel that we give, but let us always point God's people 
to the comfort of the cross. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not the uncaring, distant, deistic God who is uninvolved and does not care about the affairs of men, but cares so much that you sent your Son to take on our flesh and suffer in our place so that we could know you as we consider your wondrous works by faith. Works far more wondrous than those in the natural realm to which Elihu points but your wondrous works of steadfast love and the gospel of your Son, where as we ponder them, we know that you will regard us and you will draw near to us because it is exactly what you've done in Christ. Lord, help us to point your people to that wondrous work in our preaching, in our teaching, in our personal ministry to each other, in our parenting. Lord, in all that we do, 